Hi, and welcome to Figure of Speech, a program from WRBH where every week you can meet local poets and writers from the New Orleans community and listen to them share their work. Take a listen. Hello, everyone. My name is Henry Goldcamp, and much thanks to David Benedetto and the rest of the WRBH affiliates for having me on. I am going to read some fiction for y'all today, a little bit about me, and I will just go ahead and read this third-person biography, uh, even though it's me talking about it. Henry Goldcamp has lived against the Mississippi his entire life. His work appears in many journals, most recently Cutbank, Xavier Review, Glitter Mob, Permafrost, Notre Dame Review, and The Cape Rock. Last year, his work was nominated for a push cart and two Best of the Nets. He is the recipient of the Ryan Chigazola Award for Poetry from University of New Orleans, and his Bad Beach manuscript was named a finalist in Yemesis' 2018 chapbook contest. His short story, The Manner of Your Scramble, was awarded the Richard Cortez Day Prize from Humboldt State University. His public art projects have been covered by Time and NPR. So I'm going to read a series of three stories today. Um, thanks so much for tuning in, and uh, feel free to shout out and, and let me know what you think. This is a really short piece called Moo. Putting on the suit was humiliating. My enormous pit-stained manager waddles over with the 60-inch spotted pants. He's been sucking on the AC vents and back all morning, avoiding windows. I fantasize about clocking out about mowing every single boiling hot blade of grass in my neighborhood instead. Anything else. I hop my legs into the bovine holes and he gently lowers Maggie's head on me, an initiative right to commence my journey of the job. Dude acts like we're selling frozen rosaries. By the time my eyes adjust to the dark, he's already sweating back and back doing his fat catfish thing with the air supply. Hold the sign, too, chimes Brian, smiling like a light bulb, teeth full of gaps. My idea of a perfect summer vacation is popping the entire population of blackheads on his nose, one by one, watching them squiggle to yellowish death between my bit nails, poolside. The sign is the usual promo of half-off baby calves licking a Neapolitan Sunday out of trough. It's got a wooden stake to hold it up with. People going to think I'm protesting against happiness in the world. I have to talk loud to get the words out my cow mouth. Maggie and these souls are meshing, B. It's a miracle. I'm without sense of being or self-individualization. I'm a milky economic savior. You feel that shit? I do feel a kind of superpower. Anything you say in this thing is a joke. Yes. He's not kidding. Walking into the machine gun sun onto Olive Street rush hour, I reach my hoof to the sky, flipping off Brian under my fuzzy cow mitten, considering Maggie's pregnancy and the inevitable pain of her labor, but mainly the sweat on her baby boy's brow. This is a short story. Um... And, and much thanks to uh, the Molotov Cocktail for publishing that flash piece, Moo. Um, and up next is a story called Bloodsuckers. And uh, much thanks to Pretty Owl, a publication that put this out. And even more thanks for uh, they nominated this story for a Best of the Net last year. So it was an honor to have that. So thank you. This is called Bloodsuckers. 
I just used what was left on a Visa gift card on an off-brand Diflucan and was pissing in my apartment alley when blades of frosted grass, a tuft squeezing out from a crack in the icy asphalt, started throbbing blue with the overhead cobra light. It scared the shit out of me. I clutched at a six bottle of stag in my hand for moral support. The grass was the same blue as this month's electric bill, same as the spiral-inked note from Mike demanding I get out by the new year, now wrapped around my stag as a sort of poor man's koozie. The gentle... The blue was gentle and hot, and I tugged at my denim crotch for some relief. Nothing doing. I was just pinching my dick skin stage left over and over, like a hunger that discovers its pantry only holds dry navy beans that need soaking overnight. I could hear the lightly buzzing Thursday night three blocks down and knew I needed to get in there. I had to get drunk enough to distill the itch. Back in August, I'd found this Mike on Craigslist with a desperate post for a roommate to help with rent. His former had fled to Belize with a Jesuit or something close to that. No sublet contract or papers to sign. Due to a strict adherence in the mathematical rule of rounding up from half to one, I didn't tell him that I'd be coming to fill his second bedroom's need straight from a halfway house on Broadway. A month after I'd moved in, I also didn't tell him that I'd managed to sneak a used tanning bed into my bedroom, also from Craigslist. So I guess I got jock itch from something from the thing. Angry at the sudden change of mind, the trickly effect that three sopping wet years can make, I looked instead at something else, maybe a car, and it was dark. And the street lamps flickered like VHS tapes about to end. I began to breathe the winter in and out like a catfish, each exhale an extinguished match. I thought my logic impeccable. What better thing to help dry out a drunk than a nice, hot, 220-volt tanning bed. I should have been happy, I guess, to be blessed with such American things as an Ameren energy bill. Only a year ago, it would have been anyone's guess how I could make the night electric, but lately, I've had a general idea. Not even a general idea, a guarantee. I'd found a different source of warmth this winter, for free, and it wasn't a hit-it, forget-it cross-dresser this time, also from Craigslist. Disappointed by all this, the weight of it all, I tried illuminating the brown glass against the pungent alley light. I could hear blood running through my ears, pumping a tune to make me feel better. You and me, baby, the sunset on your arm hair, nothing but us. It wasn't a real song, so I felt pretty stupid. Plus, I didn't want to think about whose arm it was. The song was about the future, the sounds it might hold, peals of glass and silence. I maybe had to go to my mom's Christmas dinner in two days. That was up to me. I crammed the stag up against my teeth, but what do you know? It was empty. You all should know that I'm 20 years old and I have crummy tattoos and regret most everything that involves anything I've decided. As in decision-making, taking things, then I guess shaping them to your liking. Another thing about me, I like the word all because people don't appreciate it anymore. It's something very attainable, and I nearly worship the idea of it because if I don't, I don't know what else better to bow down to. Enough about me. The city is made of nothing but mud and bricks. Dark-blooded bricks stacked themselves everywhere and stayed their same flatline color, day or night, like they were electric. The mud just sat around like a bum, never shaved, smelled like wet cardboard, would run with you when you're sleeping. Actually, never mind all that. I protect myself with the fact that I'm born here and now. No one can say shit to me because I have a nice bar in my apartment and used to shoot up heroin a couple years back. It was the worst thing ever but it felt like the best thing ever. I still miss it. 
seems unlikely that they can't make something that feels that good that's not so bad for your entire life and everyone that's ever met you. I'm taking a lot of progress. Crawling out from a trench is more enjoyable than you might think. I learn things every day. Some days, I even learn to ignore what I learned the day before that one. Monday, I saw a nickel heads down and didn't pick it up. I understand the importance of coddling my luck. But sometimes, you run into people from high school. They think, oh, this will be awkward. Maybe they've they've heard things. But those are their ideas and not mine. And you can't prove I'm made out with your aunt. Joe Anderson, real name, was at this college bar for the same reason I was. Penny pitcher night on Thursdays and maybe find a face to lick the shit out of. He was six foot six and reminded me of a white Gumby. Funny thing, the real Gumby starred in the first nightmare I can remember. I was like six. In high school, I told ex-girlfriends about the nightmare and said I was four, but I was probably around eight. I guess I never knew anything before I was eight years old or six or four. I'm positive that I know things now. We ordered next to each other at the bar, and we were both there for the same reasons, but he asked me the wrong question. How have you been? They never actually want to know that. Not so good, actually. I was in Chicago the month before buying an ounce of cocaine from a Latin king, then from there took a train into upstate New York to help an acquaintance's grandma get her Subaru in safe hands because she had driven it into her synagogue. In other words, I was coming down off about $300 worth of cocaine because she was no longer fit to drive. I collected some chips in my teeth since that trip, and now I kind of look like an animal who dwells on a riverbank. I felt like a nutria wearing new balances, my front paws shoeless in this chilly water. I imagined my smile was kind of ugly and scaring him, and my thirst was a fantasy his mother read to him before he fell asleep as a kid. I have no idea what he was actually like. I just remembered he had short blonde hair and was super tall and wasn't that interesting. This guy probably wasn't even him. But what I really said was, Not so good, actually. He thought it was a fun, funny, drunken joke. I was smiling. Do you have five bucks to spare? I also want a lot of money. He gave me a sympathy laugh while scouring the bottles down on the rail for different faces. I'm so sorry. I'm serious. It wasn't fun for either of us anymore. Joe looked like he wanted to blind me somehow. Instead, he gave me the five bucks, a $5 bill exactly, for the sake of not talking to me anymore. I obliged him, took it, and went to the back patio to cool off in the freezing cold. He asked a question into my back. Hey, why are you so tan? Beer in a pitcher gets hot quick. Five dollars on penny pitcher night is 5,000 gallons of beer if you don't tip. The chill was worth it. I drank all I could from the pitcher, which was all of it. Now ballooning with air and liquid, I really didn't want to see Joe Anderson again, so I clambered over the wood fence to get away. The fence pinched my thigh and it really hurt but not that bad. I realized my ears were still humming with the sound of blood. I walked down the street to Lucky's, another crummy spot, and on my way grabbed a pack of smokes with the money Joe gave me. My favorite thing about St. Louis is it's got the cheapest cigarettes. Even though it was really cold out, cigarettes always made me feel warm. I remember a guy at a Rams game smoking one outside in a line when I was a kid. He looked oddly warm, and I got jealous. He had a fire, and I didn't. I started smoking later that year. I like to play pretend. The guy was probably just bored waiting for nachos at 10 a.m. Good for him. I forgot that I had the bartender hold a Nordstrom bag behind the bar when I showed up. It wouldn't have mattered anyway. Inside the bag was a backpack with nothing in it, maybe half a Sprite and a lighter. I just carried it so I wouldn't scare people as bad. 
make some thank yous from the county or something. I'd have to make it work without, stuck in Lucky's. I ordered more alcohol, feeling my tennis shoes stick to the colorless linoleum as I waited. Action never takes long. I thought this trashy girl was going to kiss me, but it took way too long to get her to do it. She had big arms confessing out her black tank top. Something about her felt honest, and I was antsy for it. She let me take her outside, then tucked herself under my jacket, breathing the snot of her nose into the whereabouts of my heart. She commented on how warm I was, and I felt like a cartoon cigarette with hands, like I'd just received a compliment. Somehow, she also thought that I was a cocaine dealer, because I told her I was a cocaine dealer. I also pretended to know a lot about wine, and then we finally kissed when I mentioned France. Lots of people become interested in you when it's winter in St. Louis and no one wears layers and you're drunk and can't feel anything and have plenty of things to spare except money. My dad always told me to invest in a good winter jacket, and he was right. Everyone else screaming their heads off around the bar looked dressed for Destin, fingers tacky with red-headed sluts, each shadowy neck hickeyed, chewed up bubblegum harlequins. Tank top tic-tacs back over to me wanting a light for a cigarette, then can't find her pack, then can't find her jacket. Her asshole boyfriend took it or something. Those are her words, not mine, as I try my best to keep from cursing. I try to keep her mouth on mine or a green bottle between my teeth so she can't see how fucked up they are. I scrounge for a cigarette in my pocket and instead pull out a crumpled pad of wands. She mistakes this for an attempt at propriety, but it's mainly receipts and I have a pack of reds in my jacket that are still unopened because Joe Anderson. We make out on the sidewalk, and I'm afraid the bouncer might say something, but he doesn't. Her tongue is one of the only warm things in the midst of the cold besides my crotch. I know for a fact my crotch is always warm. My mom bought me sweatpants every Christmas since I was six. I couldn't remember the last time I had worn sweatpants, but at that second, making out with tank top, I wanted sweatpants so bad. I wanted an apartment with a heater. I was sick of sleeping in the tanning bed, having it tur- to turn it on every couple hours for heat. I decided I would definitely show up to my family Christmas party after that. I wanted to go home and put sweatpants on and lay down. I wanted to be comfortable. But my decision kept me inside Lucky's, kept tank top under my jacket, kept me from scanning the room, reading all the bottles. She wasn't as warm as I thought she would be underneath, and actually looking at her face, noticed she had horrible skin. Her name was Jenna, not tank top. You give people nicknames as objects when you don't want to be attached to them. Imagine being in love with someone named Cup. See what I mean? She was still sexy, though, because she grabbed my dick through my jeans. Cupped it, I guess you could say. I kissed her again and slipped around on her chapstick. It felt cheap on both mine and the chapstick's parts. I went to the bathroom out the front door and down the street, wiping the annoying wax from my lips. I passed a pretzel shop and slapped at mosquitoes. They're incredible, even more incredible than the women here. They actually know what they want, which, if you're an idiot, is blood. I had no idea how they were fighting the winter air, but man, they were going at it. I kept looking around and had to pee, natural for someone drinking in dark and rubbing their penis on a woman they don't know, and found a good fence. A couple walked behind me midstream, and the girl laughed. She said something about her life concerning mine, and I couldn't have cared any more than I already did. I gave my dick a quick exam, but couldn't see anything. It just looked gray. Zipped. I walked in the other direction, back from where I'd already come from. I thought I felt another mosquito on my forearm, but it was too cold to be true. I slapped anyways. I started questioning bloodlines and commission and if they'd ever let me back in. Suddenly, I wanted to call Joe Anderson, but at that time couldn't remember my name and didn't have his number anyway. 
I had a headache and started towards the popular streets where everyone already knew each other, meaning they knew best not to know me. So I smoked and stepped inside the closest and smacked my wrist and asked if they had any specials tonight. The night kept being that night and tried to suck me up through its gin-slick straw, and I wondered what happens if I quit clinging to the insides and just sucked up. Thanks so much for listening. I just have one more story, and this is uh, one I'm very proud of. It hasn't been picked up yet, but it is simply called Love Story. Suppose I'll get to the point first thing. The world is a giant shower, and you are alone in it, and you can sing and dance however you want. And I suppose I'll tell you who we are. We're the idiots with the vintage Louis Vuitton bags waiting in boarding group C in front of the snotty kids sneezing in the back of our knees. So be it. No one sees us get from A to B except us. Olivia and I do our usual walk straight to the back, pretending we ain't chasing, we ain't catching these Hoosiers looking. It's a full flight, but we find two next to each other. I give her the window so she can daydream how she wants. A loner soon takes the aisle. Already I could smell the cough drops filling my face space from the talker next to me. His voice was neck deep in southernness, a lowly parade trumpeting beneath his Vietnam vet's hat. The airplane air thickens with red syrup, the mechanical breath of his open system in this closed one. It feels like I'm licking his throat, just listening. He's on a non sequitur about his daughter being smart in Baton Rouge. I can't tell if she's grown or not. Olivia and I are on the ground in my hometown of St. Louis, waiting to take off to her hometown in the suburbs of New Orleans, where we now live together. New Orleans and St. Louis are pretty similar cities for the most part. They're both against the river. Both still pretend to be French just because a way-distant uncle came from the Rhone a hundred years ago. I ain't hating, though. I would pretend to be French, too, if I could pull it off like them. Me and her used to be long distance for the longest time. The Mississippi served us like a telephone cord, useless, outdated, slapping electric heart canoes back and forth, just like the barges do down there in the city of big asses. Soon as I snipped it and moved down for good, God blessed us with a car accident that gave us good money in the settlement because Olivia got migraines for a few months. I'm a terrible driver, and my accident stats were into the double digits, but the cash made me have this fantasy where I impregnated her and we had a daughter and named her Destiny. That accident was the only one that wasn't my fault. We bought a little house with the earnings, and I counted my losses and sold my truck. Then we got married in a field in Louisiana like bitches down here supposed to. We like our suburb of Eden destitute with yellow crabgrass and trash and insomniac garden beds. Somehow a bird of paradise still cranes its neck from a corner of our house, brilliant with purple of the earth. We're good neighbors about shit. We clean our bubblers often and keep the windows shut when we smoke, and when we blow we keep the music turned down or at least we all don't scream our lungs out at once. We take turns. Teamwork the dream work. Al, our only next-door neighbor, offered the bird to us as a housewarming gift. I watch him pull it out on his porch, walk over and knock and holler at the side door. My two favorite things to watch from the kitchen window are Al and this gang of fat blackbirds that bathe in the oily rainwater that never dries up across the street. He gripped the green necks like a fresh-shot nutria, the roots dripping dry dirt on our stoop. The leaves were speckled with old white paint like everything Al wears. 
He's a painter and a slob and a bad one. He said he'd give us a grocery bag full of lemons next time he was at his place in Mississippi, and he did. The birds are cute as hell when they shake off that nasty shit. Al's lemons were alien yellow, big as coconuts with rinds thicker than my thumb. We made crummy lemonade late on a Wednesday. It had the slight tint and taste of brown, which we cut with the matching color of rum. That's one of many complicated metaphors for good love, I think. Our plane home starts its rocky crawl towards the runway, and the gay flight attendant sways up the aisle in a yellow plastic life vest with something like grace. He eyes me, my mustard turtleneck, gold chains, tan herringbone suit, leftovers from the New Year's Eve party in my ice-cold city we're about to fly from. It feels productive simply leaving a zero-degree day behind. I'm left no choice but to flash him a smile, my front tooth clasped in 14-karat gold. He whirls around like I open-handed him, storming back to the front of the cabin. They say smiles are powerful. I freely admit I dress like a Coke dealer circa 1975 on purpose, though that exact purpose is murky to me. Ever since we moved to the suburbs, I've not stopped decorating myself. My brown mustache is dyed blonde at the tips. My hair, though absolutely balding, has grown long and goofy, a muss of thin wire. My life is olive and mustard and cherry and carrot, tasteful and decadent and possibly edible. An orchard anybody else hopes for. Olivia's in a similar boat of clothes, but prefers dressing as a postmodern witch. She's all blacks from forever in H&M and Target, a draped flowiness, a magnet for wind and a picture wishing to hide its frame. Her spells are silent. She talks less each passing year. She says it's because of paying more attention to all this weird up in front of her face. I can tell the talker next to us is liking it. He keeps up a blatant side eye, but he's grinning at us in a good way. I can't tell if it's that old man looking at a young couple in love who's been there himself bullshit or not yet. You could take a bite out of the stuffy air, what with the syrupy menthol. At least my sinuses are clearing. He pops another lozenge, stuffs the crinkled wax paper into his denim shirt pocket. Seems nothing else in it but trash, not even a pen. It's puffy, like a strange, lopsided breast. His lips are bright red, like a drag queen. I haven't, but just for fun, I wonder if I've seen him before. Perhaps we danced with him last night. The talker's daughter is a doctor, which means nothing to me and puts a bad taste in my mouth. I actually care for doctors and firemen, even less that I do cops. The doctors don't dress right in public. Scrubs ain't a superhero outfit. The doctors don't dress right in public. Scrubs ain't a superhero outfit. They ugly, and you can get changed in two minutes, and there's nothing pressing today that you're a phrenonym plastic surgeon. And firemen just play video games all day. But what do I know, really? We hardly ever leave the house unless it's for a party. We have the average amount of American money, so little, but we managed to scrape last minute, even on short notice. We've gone to Tampa, Pensacola, Brooklyn, Nashville, St. Louis, obviously. I was going to say Santa Fe, but those plans got burned up last year. But all these places we've been to only with the plans of attending a single party. That's all it takes. You'd probably guess it, but Olivia is a property manager of a big apartment complex, and I'm a bartender. Olivia has to say things like, unfortunately, no, Wi-Fi isn't included. And I got to explain, yes, really, a raw egg white is always a necessary ingredient in any proper sour. Basically, our jobs are telling people, yes, just rent it, drink it, it'll be fine. We take our jobs home with us with no negative consequences except this one time. 
Al saw me get our mail one evening in a shimmering silk maroon robe, knock off Gucci slippers and a last word in my hand. From what I think is a direct result, he no longer offers lemons or yells for us. That night I read the mattress advertisements in silence. Olivia and I have never understood the wave of distaste for fashion. We believe in a starch newness, unsoiled and new. A proper outfit should make you feel born again, not in a religious sense, but in a memorable, embryonic one. So fresh and so clean. I've been born again so many times, I'm starting to feel invincible. We took jobs one season dancing with promo signs for Tax Liberty, working out a contract minimum wage where we could work side by side. We convinced the guy it would double the passerby's attention. We danced on the neutral ground, both dressed as foam statues of liberty. We quit the same day because Rally's bags kept getting whipped at us for kicks. When we picked up the bags to go throw them away, they had the same weight and consistency of soiled diapers. On the way to the bus stop trash can, we had our kid talk and decided we didn't want any. The final straw was when a red man spit tobacco spit from the window of his jacked-up pickup truck. The thing sat like a high-rise apartment. It streaked right across my wrist, right on the exposed blazer peeking beneath Lady Liberty's foam arm, ruining an otherwise fine twill. I tell the talker that that's great about his daughter. He laughs and says, yeah. He gives me my turn. I tell him that we are on our way home from a party. Our vacations, if you want to call them that, only last two or three days and are mostly comprised of us watching television in the motel discussing how interesting commercials are. We haven't owned a TV for close to a decade, so cable always feels like a course in cultural anthropology. We watch NBC and Fox News and BET and Daystar like bugged-out possums. It's meditative. It's addictive. I don't tell them that all the parties are terrible. We can never drink enough and often feel unaltered by drugs. We have a confirmed theory that booze in Florida actually contains no alcohol whatsoever. It sounds like I'm being stupid or shocking or something. But at that two-day Tampa house party, we drank five bottles of decent vodka and 48 Heinekens between the two of us. We felt fine. The talker says he hasn't been to a good party in a long time. He looks up into his whiny air vent, and I can tell he's been to some good ones. I pry. I asked him when the last time was. He doesn't want to give it up, says, oh, I don't know. How was ours? I'm hesitant to answer because usually when I talk to strangers at any length, it ends with them having no idea what I'm talking about and me feeling crazy but I feel good about the talker and indulge. I start him off with our standards. It's easy to gauge a party, past, present, future. Walk in, and if they talk, they talk about right now, you good. Present tense is best. They're screaming over a green sweater on fire. They're talking about how you can't roll your R's. What the, v-? and everybody in the room starts going, Rrr. they're talking about the hole she just kicked through the drywall with their ass. These are the folks celebrating National Yelling Day every day of their lives. They're a lot to take on the daily, but we like them for a night. Thank you so much. That was a segment from my story, uh, Love Story. And uh, I really appreciate y'all listening. That was writer and poet Henry Goldcamp reading through a few of his fiction pieces. And you've been listening to WRBH's Figure of Speech, a new community poetry and writing program. You can tune in on Saturdays at 1 p.m. and every Monday at 9 p.m. for more great New Orleans writing. Thanks for listening.